You're here with the uh, Disrupt TV Green Room. We're talking about the Las Vegas Golden Knights and, of course, the Denver, I'm sorry, Colorado Rockies. I don't know. What's going on? <laughs> Nuggets. Nuggets. Anyways, hey, just kidding. Um, so we're definitely not talking sports here. We're definitely talking tech. And here in the Green Room with me and Vala uh, and, of course, Elle. But we've got some interesting guests. So let's go in reverse order and tell us where you're calling in from and what you're talking about today. So, John, go ahead. Hey, uh, it's John Reed. I'm back from the in the Bat Cave, back from the tarmac. I'm going to be talking about uh, today's enterprise buyer and why marketers are getting this all wrong. And if we have time, we can do a little generative AI, true or false, from the conference season. <laughs> Excellent, and an ebook too, as we know. Jason, new book. What's going on? Where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? I am calling in from Rutherford, New Jersey, in the Garden State, and I'm here to talk about my new book which is winner sells all about amazon and walmart and their decades-long rivalry and not only in retail and now healthcare and beyond yep definitely a battle all right michael where are you coming in from what are we talking about hi guys this is michael amori i'm calling in from pasadena california and i'm talking about a particular field of ai called intelligent exploration applied to data analytics and why it's a big deal I can't wait to hear more. All right, Elle, over to you and time to kick it off. All right, three, two, one. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. He's a regular television uh, business and tech contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC. In my humble opinion, one of the top features to follow on Twitter at RWNG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Vala Afshar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. But more importantly, his new book, Boundless, A New Mindset for Unlimited Business Success, is going to be available this September, and you can start pre-ordering today on Amazon. But more importantly, executives around the world pay attention to every one of his insightful and inspirational tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, on speaking on business TV outlets like Bloomberg, He's posting insightful analyses on ZDNet and other outlets. But it's never about us. It's about our amazing guests. And who do we have to kick it off today? Uh, it's our pleasure to have Michael Amori, CEO of Virtualytics. Michael uh, is co-founder of Virtualytics, an AI-driven data analytics software company. In fact, the AI platform is based on over 10 years of research of Caltech and is aimed at simplifying the implementation of AI and enterprise and the government to help solve some of the most complex data problems. Michael is a data scientist and an entrepreneur with a background in finance and physics. Michael co-authored many of the patents underpinning Virtualytics AI platform. He believes that AI applied to data analysts can help solve, again, some of the world's toughest challenges. Prior to co-founding Virtualytics, Michael was a managing director at Deutsche Bank, where he started and headed a data-driven trading desk in London, New York, and India focused on insurance and pension markets. Welcome, Michael, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, sir. 
Michael, you've been through every single ice age in AI <laughs> since the beginning. I mean, you can think about all the neural nets, all the neural, all the stuff that was being discovered back in the day. And we didn't have enough data. We didn't have the compute power, but we knew that the algorithms might, might one day might work. So let's talk a little bit about AI-based intelligent data exploration. Uh, because there's a lot of interesting concepts that have come up through the decades and how it can actually pull together a full picture of what's going on with data. That's right. So, yeah, I've been through a lot of the, uh, a lot of the steps in AI. That's just a, a virtue of being really old. That's what happens. But <laughs> so uh, I, think we're, I think we're heading towards a new era and things are growing at an exponential pace right now. And what our company's focused on is a particular part of the analytics process, which is the data exploration process, which to a lot of people might sound like it's already a solved problem, but it actually isn't. So in a typical data analytics process, you start out with the pre-processing of the data, then you explore the data set, you figure out what you wanna do with it, and then you come up with predictive models using AI, and then you come up with recommendations from AI. That's kind of yep. the traditional big picture analytics process. Now, the problem with the traditional way of doing data exploration is that humans approach the data set already with a bias, already with a preconceived hypothesis yeah. of what might be going on in that data. And then they want to see if the data confirms that hypothesis or not. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I used to do analysis when I was working on Wall Street, right? That's the normal way of doing things. But now we have AI. AI can actually explore the data set for you yep. and tell the human being what are all the possible hypotheses hidden in the data set that are worth pursuing. And then the human can decide which path to take as opposed to starting out the process already with a path in mind. And that means that you're not gonna leave behind a lot of gems in the data that you would otherwise not be aware of, okay? So we're taking advantage of, like you know, Ray said, the fact that now AI can handle huge amounts of data. We take advantage of the fact that you can use natural language to really explain to the user what's going on with the data. And then there is the next step. Once you have come up with all the possible paths, we can actually use the AI to generate all the data visualizations and all the explanations that really open up for the user what's going on in the data. So that's how we're approaching it. And, um, and it's really resonating with customers because it's a different way of, of handling what might be the most important part of the analytics process. So it's fascinating that it's AI-based exploration. So Michael, I'm an, I'm an enterprise prospect. I'm a chief marketing officer uh, or chief revenue officer of an, of an enterprise. And I decide to bring your company to help me explore data and make better, more informed decisions. Can you talk to us about the process? Like, for example, how long before I can see the recommendations or the exploration that's now AI powered through your platform and quickly realize, wow, I had all these blind spots. I had all these preconceived notion of how my campaigns were performing or how my sales opportunities would convert and help us grow revenue. What's the timeline before, you know, there's that wow moment that your clients see that, that the AI powered exploration process is, far better, far more rich, and has so much more contextual intelligence than the existing processes that they're using? Yep, great question. I think the, the short answer is, it probably takes around one to two months for us to configure the software to the kind of data that the client has. And we work closely with the client to make sure that uh, they're getting the most out of the platform. But then after that, after that one to two months configuration period, uh, they are ready at the push of a button whenever they load up a new data set, they are ready to see all the possible kind of areas of interest in a, in a data set. And if I can add one more thing, Bala, that I think is, is important. One of the technologies that we use as part of the 
AI-driven intelligent exploration is the ability to turn a regular data set, kind of a tabular data set, the traditional ones, we know columns and rows yeah. that we're all used to, we can turn it into a network graph representation and showcase the data in terms of a network graph with explanations that are automatically generated by the AI. And, and I think, uh, but to answer your question, your original question, one to two months for the platform to be implemented. That's incredible that within a fiscal quarter or yeah. two thirds of a fiscal quarter, you can really uh you know unleash the power of ai to help to help explore data in a more effective way that's great you know one of the things that you guys are known for is really your 3d analytics and your visualization of that data and the different endpoints of that data um talk about how that helps with collaboration or storytelling or you know the ability to actually kind of share stuff or, or even look at bias in data so sure uh, absolutely so as, uh, as I was saying earlier, you know, the you load up a data set and let's talk about an example. Let's say that you are a company that wants to understand better its customers, wants to do market segmentation in, in, a, in, a, in a very sophisticated way, right? You might have a data set that has many, many features describing your customers. So, you know, many metrics that describe the customers, maybe socioeconomic metrics, plus a lot of things related to their buying patterns, et cetera, et cetera. You might have hundreds of metrics for each of these customers. Now, all of a sudden, you realize that if you have hundreds of metrics, the traditional way of looking at things in 2D kind of falls short, right? Because this is the world is much more complex than just regular 2D visualizations. So the AI now looks for the patterns in the data and it, and it as part of that, it looks at a network representation of the data set, which allows you to see what are the different communities of customers that you have across many, many features, both, both uh, uh, quantitative features, categorical features, and maybe unstructured features as well. We now created this, this uh, network graph with communities now, if you can visualize that in 3D as opposed to flat 2D, yeah. you can actually exactly, you can turn around the graph and you can see a lot more richness in the actual visualization. You can see a lot more of the complexity of the visualization. So we thought that the 3D visualization come hand in hand with what the AI is generating because the AI is not dumb, right? The AI is coming up with some smart recommendation is not limiting itself to two dimensions. It might come up with a recommendation that's based on eight different things going on in your data. You wanna be able to see those things as much as you can. And when you're visualizing data in 3D, what's really cool is you're not just going from two features that you can see to three features. You're actually going from two to up to 10 features. Because if you think about it, like in the real world, when you're looking at stuff in 3D, you're looking at a tree or at, at a pencil or something like that, you're not just seeing the X, Y, and Z location of that particular object. You're actually starting to see things like color, brightness, transparency, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden in a 3D world, many more features become available to the human mind to understand. You see what I mean? That's that's the really amazing thing. Michael, I, I can't but help ask this question, given sure. the fact that your co-founder worked on iViz at Caltech, right? What is this gonna look like on the Vision Pro? <laughs> oh, that's right. That, that, that's exactly right. So we need to experiment now with that. Uh, we, we, uh, we have done it with Oculus. Yep. So, and, um, and it looks amazing. So when you're actually visualizing data in VR and you can actually interact with it, uh, rotate it and have and collaborate with people, have many people in the same room looking at data at the same time, even if the people might be all over the world uh, geographically, I, I think it's an amazing experience. It's it's great to to hear about data visualization. I mean, we're all visual learners. I believe ninety percent of what the brain processes is visual in nature, and processing. And I believe thirteen milliseconds, which is I believe sixty thousand times faster than 
understanding text or words. So I love this multidimensional visualization. Um, and whether it's pharmacographic data, you know, the company's health in stock, uh, the, the company's, the, the industry they serve, the products that they're look, interested in, and also the structured data in terms of contacts and the buying decision team and, and their buying persona and journey maps. So I, it, it's absolutely right that to understand your customer, it's a multidimensional uh, understanding that contextual intelligence is often missing. In fact, our last guest, John Reeder, will probably talk to us about how the buying process in B2B is broken and is missing the context that's needed. So, so who is the who's the persona or the uh, or the buyer that you that most common reaches out to you? Is it the chief information? Is it the chief marketing revenue? Uh, chief experience? Like who is the person that brings this advanced capability of virtual ethics into their company? Who do you typically work with? So we typically work with the the executive team. So it could be the chief information officer. I think okay. typically. And then the actual user then becomes the analyst, uh, okay. okay, who is now empowered by AI to be able to do very sophisticated things, okay. But then the consumer of the output would be the executives as well. So the uh, and again that that goes to the fact that you can use this technology for advanced storytelling on data. Yeah, that's great. So uh, that's it was Brené Brown who said, "Strong stories are stories." Uh, you know, you know, data with a soul. Uh, when you have data-driven storytelling, that's that's that's, right. that's the most important. So go ahead, Ray. No, no. I was, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about all the things. Like we've been through all these different areas around AI, and now we're talking about responsible AI. And I think that's an area that you guys have been tackling as well and looking at. Uh, and I also wanted to, if if it makes sense, and if, if you're able to talk about battlefield implications of what you're using here as well, because there's some really good ones for situational awareness uh, that that are popping up. So so show, show us about what's going on with you know the dangers of AI, the responsible AI that needs to be put into place. Uh, some people want to put controls. Some people understand that you can't really put controls on the technology. Once again, like anything, the technology is is neutral, but it's the humans that use the technology that often create the problem. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I think um, I, I'm very optimistic about what I'm in the camp of the people who think that AI can uh, can really change the world. Obviously, I have a vested interest in it, but trying to be objective about it. Uh, I think uh, Mark and Dreesen wrote a really great article recently about it, and I kind of share his, his thoughts on that. Um, but I think one way in which you can make the AI responsible and kind of mitigate the dangers of it is by making it as transparent as possible. So you don't want the AI recommendation to be just a black box that nobody understands. So especially when it comes to say a combat situation where the AI says, okay, launch the missile. And it's like, okay, well, you know, there are basic, there are a lot of implications. And so let's, let's understand why what what data did it use to come up with that and um and so what are the limitations of that recommendation as well and i think that's where the intelligent exploration comes into play as well we yep. can use intelligent exploration to analyze an ai model this is like really cool so you have ai yeah. analyzing ai so you yep. have a, an ai predictive model comes up with recommendation we can feed it into the platform and figure out okay what are the drivers of this recommendation? What is are the limitations of this? When does the model seem to fail? And I think having that openness is a huge deal uh, that's going to help out a lot to keep to keep AI honest. Makes a lot of sense. No, yeah. we definitely agree with that. So. Uh, cool. Well, hey, this is wonderful. We want to definitely continue this conversation. Uh, we have an event that occurs uh, October 23rd through 26th in Half Moon Bay, and uh, we hope to follow up with you later to talk more about that. So because we're definitely looking at where the expansion of AI is going to hit, and uh, you're definitely guys doing something very different than other players in the space. So thank, thank you, Michael. Thank Thanks you for inviting me. Thank you very much. Happy Friday. Friday. So. Thank you. Happy Friday, guys. See you guys. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. AI we have taken AI. AI to the next level here. This is super cool, and uh, yeah, I, I think multi-dimensional modeling is is key. There's a lot of context that business leaders are missing today because they do look at things in uh, few, too few of the uh, of dimensions. Our next guest, Jason Del Rey, author of Winners 
sell all, Amazon, Walmart, and the battle for our wallets. Jason is a veteran business journalist who spent a decade at Recode, leading online technology publication, reporting on Amazon, Walmart, and how technology is transforming retail, both online and in stores. Jason is the host of Land of the Giants, the rise of Amazon narrative uh, series about tech giants rise and the impact of its relentless ambition on hundreds of millions of people across the globe. Jason was also the producer of Code Commerce, an event series featuring unscripted interviews with the most influential executives and entrepreneurs working at the intersection of technology and commerce. National Retail Foundation named Jason as one of the 25 people shaping retail's future. You can find Jason on Twitter at Delray, D-E-L-R-E-Y. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to have you. Hey, we're super excited to have you, right? You know, you're 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 like on Matt Shea's top ten list, so it's uh, <laughs> it means everything on the NRF world. But but you know, this battle that you're talking about, it's an epic battle, and, and what you're talking about here is the transition between digital to physical, uh, transition across different industries, the competition for multiple types of monetization models, and it's all happening in front of us. Yet nobody's really chronicling this and really categorizing what's happening here. So so why did you write this book? And why is it so important for people to understand this battle that's going on between a digital giant and what we consider like, you know, a brick and mortar legacy player? Yeah, I wrote it for a couple of reasons. But one key one was that this is one of the greatest case studies in the innovators dilemma that we've ever seen in modern business history. This is Clay and Christensen innovators dilemma. Yes. That you're yes. Referencing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And and. You know, I really think that at least in a long form way, you know, Walmart's challenges to reinvent itself have been quite undercovered. Obviously, there's been great books written about Amazon. Uh, Brad Stone's two books come right to mind, Everything Store and Amazon Unbound. There was a, a really um, good Walmart book uh, called The Walmart Effect, but that was published in 2006. I don't think the word Amazon was even mentioned in that book. I, and I don't blame the author. Um, and so I just think for, you know, we have the two biggest private sector employers in the US, two of the most powerful companies in the world, impact our lives in so many ways. And I just, I couldn't believe it, but I felt like the story of their rivalry and how it's impacted other, each other's decisions has been rather undercovered. And so I'm hoping to tell that story to the world. I, I hope it resonates. And I think there's both lessons for business leaders in it, but also for the average smart you know, person who is curious about how these companies think and what their motivations are. I think it's a really important read. And it comes out next week, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? The 20th? Uh, Tuesday, June 20th. But That's you awesome. can pre-order it today. Yes. On any platform. I Someone told me earlier that Walmart is actually undercutting Amazon on the price right now um, of the book. And who, who would have I, thought that? You oh, know. What a clever, uh, yeah, what a clever launch of a book with two huge distributors. That's awesome. Uh, so you, yes. you, you had a you had a, an in-person interview with the Walmart CEO, Doug McMillan, and he's not someone that gives many interviews. So what was, uh, first of all, it must have been awesome to sit uh, with a person leading uh, an incredible company. What were some of the things you learned about him, his philosophy, his vision, and what he's trying to accomplish? Yeah, so I last year I flew down to Bentonville, uh, Walmart's hometown. I spent a couple of days there, met with a few people. But yes, the key interview that I was there to complete was a sit down with Doug McMillan uh, in the same CEO office that Sam Walton and wow. the other, yeah. uh, let me count, I think the other three Walmart CEOs have all worked out of in, in uh, they call it the home office uh, in Bentonville, as, as many in the industry know. And uh, it was supposed to be a 60 minute interview. It ended up going about 90, which um, I was thankful for. And a couple of things I learned from Doug McMillan, uh, who's now been Walmart CEO for, uh, I think nine and a half years now, and um, the longest tenure other than Sam Walton himself. And so a couple of things I learned. One is, you know, Doug told me uh, by nature, he I'm not personally a risk taker, but for this company to exist, I think his quote was, and I, I you could fact check me when you buy my book and read it. I think he said 20, if, if, if we're going to be here 20 years from now, maybe he said 50, um, we're going to have to take big risks. And we're really trying 
to increase the speed, the pace of our transformation. And it's a long road and I'm still not satisfied, but we feel like we finally are on the right path. And part of the problem over the years, part of it was, was yes, arrogance in the early years to the, you know, and, you know, looking at this little new channel and thinking, um, it'll never get that big. You know, I have a quote from a former CEO who said their online store at Walmart would never be as big as one single Sam's club physical store locations, annual sales. And, you know, there were a lot of misprojections like that. Sure. Um, so one was, one was arrogance, but the other was just, you know, the push and pull of incentives between physical and digital, the push and pull of, well, they're going to cannibalize our sales. What does that mean for my paycheck, my manager's paycheck? And so um, maybe this is straightforward, but like well, one thing I learned was incentives really matter at a business and how Absolutely. they Absolutely. and how they interact across different units for better or worse. Um, I'll take a breath there, but some of those were some of the, the top learnings from my time with with Doug. That's well, you know what? That's actually interesting when you contrast that with, you know, Jeff Bezos and his approach, right? And then, of course, passing the torch to Andy Jassy. What do you see as some of those changes in leadership or the differences, right? Because, you know, you set the culture from top down, right? And that kind of drives all the behavior, including incentives. How do they work differently? Yeah, so obviously the the, the transition from Jeff to Andy, uh, I think it almost two years ago now, um, massive potential impact. I think, you know, honestly, two years in, it's a little tough to see what the Andy Jassy Amazon really looks like. And I'll say that because he spent so much of the last year with, frankly, cost cutting, pulling back in some areas where they felt the company had gotten undisciplined in their spending and really trying to refocus some of these big bets to make and sure- labor strife. And labor strife too. And, and labor strife. And so, you know, people who know Andy and know Jeff will say, Andy's, a, you know, a more down to earth leader in some ways. Um, he is like Jeff can be very, very hands on. I know that that has caused some strife with some leaders who were used to sort of doing their own thing um, and then had Andy come in and just, you know, killing them with questions, uh, learning the business, you know, and obviously built an incredible business in AWS, you know, a historic business, uh, but had been away from retail for a long time. And so really was going into the nuts and bolts. Some didn't like it. And some of those guys aren't at the company anymore. But um, so we're seeing, you know, there are a lot of similarities, I think, personal on a personal level there. That's where you see more of the difference. And we're seeing the cost cutting. You know, I don't know if 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 uh, Amazon under Jeff Bezos would have had it in them to to pull back as as harshly as they have in some areas. Um, but a lot of folks there think it was it was time and it was necessary. You know, my sense is that uh, what 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 both companies have in common is. Um, their intense uh, focus on their customers. They want their customers to be happy. They want to deliver value to their customers. Uh, and, uh, they are, and they do that by understanding jobs to be done, referencing Clay Christensen's innovative dilemma and the vanilla shake story yep. of jobs to be done. Uh, whether it's a greeter that welcomes you with open arms or whether it's the entire work backwards philosophy mm -hmm. uh, at Amazon, are there other things that you find that they have in common that's helped them achieve the great uh, greatness that they have, two of the most important companies in the U.S.? Well, I, I think for sure they, ha they did have something in common for a long time, which was uh, an Amazon leadership principle, but came from Wal Walmart, which was a bias for action, right? Sure. And uh, Walmart got away from it uh, in some ways over the years, I'm, I'm talking in the, you know, call it the 2000, early 2000s. And, you know, at the time they thought they might have some good reason for it. Um, but part of it was also, I think they, they sort of got fat on their, on their profits and their success and their size, you know, and we're seeing this at Amazon too, you know, it gets tough having a bias for action as, you know, you get up into the 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees. And so that's a similarity that that was there for a long time. Uh, Doug is trying very hard at Walmart to bring it back. I think we're finally starting to see the manifestation of that in the last year or two, um, partly because the pandemic forced Walmart to meet customers where they are, when they want to be, how they want to be met. Um, but, but part of it is Doug's leadership, and it's just, it's just taken a long time. Did you get a chance to see the Walmart Innovation Lab? They've had, uh, in the last several years, demonstrated some really cool advanced capabilities uh, of, of use of emerging technologies like AI, immersive experiences. Uh, what were your thoughts of visiting their innovation? Yeah, I, I, so on this, because a lot of my reporting took place during the pandemic, uh, I did not get, I did unfortunately not to get, I did not get mm -hmm. to see it. Um, but I, I do think, listen, I think they, um, they are, they've been dabbling and that's probably even too, too light of a term, uh, in a lot of interesting areas. I mean, you know, one, one, uh, you know, one, one thing about a book like this is the battle's not over and time, and I have to publish it at some point. And sure, so sure. <laughs> just right. as I'm finishing up my reporting, yeah. of course, you know, we, everyone wants to talk about generative AI <laughs> and in the, in the retail industry, the impact there. And, um, I think there's going to be obviously a massive one and, That'll have to be in book two, I guess. I'm predicting that, Jason, you have probably five or six books in you that we're going to have in the future. So I not, mean, my, my wife not... and kids may not agree with you, but um, we'll, we'll see. Oh, it's I think long, we've all been long, there. Long, long time there. for them. Yeah, you know. How, you, yeah. you know, but, but they're, these, these two companies are, are, are what we call data ink companies. They're sitting on so much data that's going to create a different asset class on the back end, and, and that's the competitive advantage. Uh, and, and one of that is really, as you're talking about this push in to different industries, right? They're both going after healthcare, right? And and let me ask, like, why? Like, this is a it's a low margin business, right? It is perfect for Bezos, because right? regulatory, perfect. right? I mean, it is just not you know, it's not an easy business to get into. So, and these both and both of them are going after it in very different ways. What did you discover? Yeah, so I'll try to unpack that in a few different ways. So, both of them have been involved in the space in some way for a long time. So back in the day, we know Amazon invested in drugstore.com. And, yep, you know, at yep. the time, Bezos really just felt we should be offering customers whatever they're purchasing on a frequent basis. And drugstore items are, you know, including prescription drugs are are key one. Uh, obviously, for a variety of reasons, you know, the PBMs, the middlemen in the industry, uh, yep. that did not go well. Uh, Walmart has had, you know, is now one of the largest pharmacies, obviously, in the in the country, um, and they've been in that space for a long time. But but to answer why, I, I think at Amazon it's a couple of things. I think for sure, I think low margin business, you know, um, Amazon's comfortable there, uh, although they've grown some pretty fat margin businesses, as we all know. Uh, so low margin business, comfortable, sort of an industry that has at least recently sort of you know showed disdain for their customers for consumers and um and sort of just a comfortable incumbent set that uh is used to operating the same old and, and it's really tough and so i think i think amazon looks at itself and says if there's a space where customers aren't being treated great um where there's an issue with cost yeah. Um, we feel we can innovate there and we're going to try our hand. And they tried, they figured out for a long, they were trying to figure out how to enter it. And then they decided one of the main ways was through the acquisition of a startup called PillPack. PillPack. Um, yep. Actually, my first book excerpt was published in Fortune this week. And it is a story of the battle between Walmart and Amazon to buy PillPack. Uh, Walmart was very, very close. Um, Amazon swept in when Walmart stalled, as they did with diapers.com way back in the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have this great anecdote. I don't know how much I should give away, but essentially a very senior Walmart leader sees the Amazon PillPack acquisition announced, and he calls up PillPack's founder and is trying to change his mind on the day that the deal is already public to the world. Um, anyway, so Walmart really cares. You know, They're trying to innovate in pharmacy as well. Um, 
But both companies also think, and it, I mean, it's still kind of crazy to me that they can play a role in actually delivering care. So Amazon Care was a service for a few years, um, both virtual telehealth, but also in, in-person concierge visits started for only employees. And that's where it ended because they shut down the service. But then Amazon recently bought One Medical for nearly $4 billion. For people that don't know, it's essentially a chain of tech forward uh, primary care clinics. And um, it's just, you know, and and just quickly on the Walmart side, one of their key reasons why they're entering the space, the Walton family, you know, had a big survey of Walmart customers in recent years. And one of the big challenges for the Walmart customer was the cost and accessibility of healthcare. And Walmart has this great advantage with being in so many communities. And so um, they've had failures over the years trying to build different types of clinics, but they both are really giving it a go. Great. I wonder which one of them will end up buying uh, Mark Cuban's uh, drug company. I mean, (laughs) I'm sure Mark is visiting both of them as we speak. Yeah, because he's done in in a year and a half. He's uh, disrupted the industry quite a bit from what I can see. From it what seems like it. Yeah, it really does. It, the numbers are, are showing that, that he has. Isn't this a good thing? I think in the end of your book, you actually say, look, this is great that you have companies competing for our wallet. So, I mean, I mean, in fact, Ray's uh, thesis in his book of duopolies is that I believe, and I'm speaking on your behalf, correct me if you're wrong, but we're moving to a world of duopolies where there's going to be ma- massive market consolidations where about 100 companies will dominate 50 sectors and will have the largest market share of number one, number twos in each of these sectors. As a retail futurist, uh, what will the landscape look like? And isn't it a good thing that you have these two companies uh, you know, competing? Well, I'll say it's better than one. So <laughs> I, will, I will give you that. You know, listen, I, I say this at the end of my book. My, my hope is that this competition leads to you know, as each raises their wages to combat, you know, the sure. other that better wages, um, they try to outcompete compete each other on convenience that that and price. Good thing for consumers. Um, they just had, they have not always delivered on the best version of a future that we want. Um, and so my fear is that that this competition alone will not be enough. And frankly, my hope as just an everyday person is we're looking back 20 years from now. And I'm not saying I want Amazon Walmart to be gone or much smaller, but that we're talking about a new company that is delivering convenience in a, and, and what we want when we want it um, in a way that's better for the environment and better for employees in this country. And whether or not that's Jason's dream world, you know, it's possible, but um I think I think you know that's something I'd I'd like to see in the next couple of decades. Who's poised to be uh, a, a serious threat number three, or not a threat, but a serious player number three? Yeah, I think you know, I think just in traditional retail, I think Target gets overlooked a lot. I think there's a great book in Target about Target's transformation. I underestimated how how you know successful they'd be at at this sort of merging of of the two sales channels. Um, younger companies, you know, you have ones that are growing super, super fast, like Shein and Timu, um, selling really, really low price goods, um, attracting a lot of customers quickly. I question the sustainability and then, you know, but, but we'll see, I mean, the environmental sustainability is definitely a question, but I, the, the business sustainability we'll see, um, and then that company up in Canada, Shopify, you know, continues to, um, just, I, I, I think they got out over their skis thinking that they were going to become a logistics company. They've now divested, I think some lost some money on it in the process, but you know, they're, they're a really smart team coming at the space from a different angle, serving the merchant. And I don't know if they ever can be the consumer facing app that they've been long dabbling with. But there's a lot of really smart folks there and some great technology. And so that's a company I continue to keep my eye on. Fascinating. This is great. Question is, 
you got to stop the book, as you said. At some point, <laughs> you got to publish. You got to submit it to your editors. It goes out the door. What did you wish you could cover that you didn't get a chance to cover? I think I can guess. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I did mention I did answer, mention the the new world of AI that we're about to enter or have entered. Um, that that's a given. But really, the, the biggest disappointment for me uh, was not having a chapter on the company's battle in India. Um, yes. I've been fascinating with the e-commerce market in India. I visited, oh, wow. you know, it's been a long time now, 2015. Yeah. I was just actually, um, you know, sending out some book promotion emails. And uh, one of the people who responded was a CEO of one of the big India e-commerce companies. Um, that is a fascinating space. Both companies feel like they need to quote win there because yeah. of challenges in china which they saw as their first overseas you know new new land um for e-commerce and uh i ray you, you want to jump in so i'll let i'll let you do that uh, but that's that's one I, I i can explain why i didn't get to it but ray go ahead no no you're, you're definitely right it's the last unfettered market in the world for a billion consumers right there aren't regulations to kick people out right they lost in brazil they lost in china right the major markets are impossible for them to get into and this is the last big one so i can't wait to see what you guys what you discover we're here yeah. with jason del rey author of winner sells all amazon walmart and the battle for our wallets and you can get the book on june 20th where books are sold on amazon and walmart and other places if you choose so hey thanks a lot for being on the show Congratulations so much for having me. Thank Follow you. Jason at Delray. Take care. You. Happy Friday. Bye. Uh, there should be no regrets. It's, it sounds like it's mm. going to be a bestseller. It's going to be an amazing It's awesome, book. and I look forward to not only reading uh, it and but also future books. I bet you it's going to be a movie on this. Speaking of <laughs> speaking of authors writing books, yeah, what's going on here? John Reed, co-founder of Diginomica, who's been covering the enterprise space since the year after Amazon was born. So Amazon, the web was 93, Amazon was 94, and John started writing about enterprise in 95. So one year after the birth Stop of- Stop it, dude. But, <laughs> sorry, yeah, I'm not saying you're old. John is the author, author of a new book titled Reaching the B2B Informed Buyer. He wrote the book because the prevailing B2B buying methodologies is flawed, and he explains why in the book. And you can find out and download this incredible book Go, you can go to digitalonomcut.com forward slash informed hyphen buyer, and you can get the book for free. Uh, John is a blogger. He's an analyst. He advises enterprise and startup folks. Great follow on Twitter at J-O-N-E-R-P. Welcome, new author and uh, uh, John <laughs> to Disrupt TV. <laughs> Thanks a lot. This feels Congratulations. Like Thanks. It feels like the year where a lot of stuff's coming to fruition, so that's cool. One of the hard lessons I learned with this with this book is like, hey, I'm just going to turn 100 blogs into a book. And it was like, oh, crap. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. No. I tried the same. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, nice nice to be here with you guys. Let's get in trouble again, shall we? Let's do, Let's do it. Uh, tell us exactly what, what what's going on. What, what's, what are we getting wrong in B2B marketing? And, and why do people keep messing this up and overcomplicating things? So. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a notorious grouch about this. And, you know, the the fundamental view that I have, and we can go deep into it if we want to, is that basically sales and marketing have to change in, in the enterprise and in B2B circles. And, they, and, and all of this is really being provoked by a couple of major changes. And, and the core of it is the change in how how buyers approach the market, how they purchase software. And and the, I use the word informed in a little bit of a quotes because obviously information is never perfect and no one's perfectly informed. But the point is that things have dramatically changed since the mid-90s. And, you know, back then buyers, when you, you, you made fun of my uh, mid-90s exploits, yeah, it's been a long time. Back then, I felt like buyers were a lot more naive and susceptible to vendor propaganda than they are today. And there's some very – you can dig out all kinds of stats on this, things like 70% of, of the buying process takes place without vendor involvement, all kinds of stats like that out there. Um, but bottom line is you see it firsthand. You see it in it shows. You see peers talking to each other and kind of discussing vendor bullshit, basically, and how to get beyond it and understand what's really going on. And then you see that continuing online, right? And you look at peer review communities that have propped up everything from G2 to Trust Radius. There's a whole environment where, where 
where buyers are basically empowered to get better information. And unfortunately, marketing and sales have been like unbelievably ineffective in their ability to, to respond to that. And ironically enough, I found myself in a position to develop a response to that, which was actually like more of an act of desperation than brilliance. But, <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's, that's the chip on my shoulder that I carry on this topic. So in your book, you write B2B buyer journey still comes down for many. In fact, mo most, uh, 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 B2B, uh, uh, vendors is awareness, consideration, and decisions. And you said that doesn't cut it anymore because buyers aren't always buying. So they're, they're missing a crucial step in the journey. And so you, in your book, you talk about contextual trusted networks and you say, these are these trusted networks. These are the arm executives with the know-how and peer insights that they need. And you said buying is increasingly a consensus process. Buyers rely on, you put trusted networks inside and outside of their companies to make buying decisions. Tell me about this, this trusted network phenomena, and that's the biggest missing piece in the current, in the current oh, yeah. model. Well, basically, buyers are talking to people like Ray. And, and, and Ray, you know, Ray's and, in my trusted network. You're in my trusted yeah. network. Yeah. Well, so the point being that, that there's a fantasy that digital has sort of transformed the buying process into I go online and just buy something. And so now I just optimize for digital clicks. But the problem is that that only works for low end software purchases. Complex, <laughs> multinational, global software implications don't work that way. And increasingly, in fact, more constituents and stakeholders are implicated, not less, because you're dealing with everything from the CFO is obviously heavily involved in everything right now. Um, you're gonna you're gonna vet your security experts. There's a lot of analysts, Ray included, that are involved in things like shortlists, where if you're not if you if you're not on the radar screen, you don't wind up on the shortlist. You're not part of the process. Add to that the fact that only one in five buyers are in buying mode at any given time, and you're really overlooking this opportunity to engage and build trust. Uh, with buyers prior to the process of, 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 of buyer engagement where by the time you get there and you're solely focused on trying to market to this one individual and you've missed out on all the different ways you can impact the process. And so the whole question in the book really becomes, well, if that's the problem, then what is the solution? And so what I challenge myself to do is instead of giving marketers a hard time for 60 pages to actually provide what I think is a better way forward. So will this, sorry, Ray, will this shape, will this Will the process of writing this book shake Diginomica as a media company, meaning will they be a CFO trusted network in Diginomica? Will there be a CMO trusted network, a chief revenue officer, chief digital? Like, will you ultimately segment and try to connect line of business owners so that they can come to one place and actually socialize and learn from each other? Like, how will this, how will this shake your your media approach to becoming a trusted publication for all these buyers good question i mean there's a lot of different components to that i mean probably if we were really good at what we do we would do exactly what you said um but but there's also but in your book <laughs> yeah and and there's also sort of the cross-pollination of those groups which is kind of what diginomica specializes yeah. in like we yeah. what we really want to do is bring everyone to the same table yeah. um and that's really a weakness in our industry because actually th this i even though I'm pretty hard on vendor marketers, vendors actually have really important things to say. Vendors know customer yes. requirements and customer problems better than anyone. I don't yes. care what analyst you are, you haven't spent as much time with customers as vendors have. But vendors, unfortunately, can't get out of their own way and communicate that information. So part of what we try to do, did an omicron last 10 years, is do that. Now, how do we remain trusted? I don't know, but that's part of what I talk about in the book is how to achieve a trusted voice, right? And you know, for Diginomica, part of that is our stance on generative AI for content where we we were actually the first publication that I know of in the world that said we're not going to use generative AI to write our article content period end of story we're not going to do it today next week or next year the Financial Times is the only other one I know of they followed us I I, I seriously doubt that they said oh Diginomica we got to do this since Diginomica is doing it but whatever I mean I don't think that's such bad company to keep uh, by the way, you're sure selling the influence you have at Diginomanta. All, all my colleagues and folks that I partner with religiously read the content coming out of Diginomica. So, so they, don't be surprised if they did uh, follow your, your footsteps. But that's a bold statement you're making because 
you know, certain, I mean, what you're saying is that you're going to deliberately ignore a technology that had 100 million adoption, adoption in 59 days. Uh, that's so, not at all. Actually, that's not at all what the statement says. But okay, okay uh, go ahead. But clarify, please. But, no, no. I mean, it's it's basically about the the writing process itself. That the okay. that the that the writing needs to be authentic and, in fact, um, vetted know, by uh, experts. Right. Exactly. And and so, look, I I'm not saying that you can't write an article, a good article, using generative AI. I'm just saying that for reader trust, we took we, we raised the bar significantly for ourselves and Absolutely. said that's what we're going to do. But that does that mean we're not going to use that technology for research? Does it mean, look, we already we already use AI for a ton of stuff in the writing process, which we actually mentioned in the position statement, right? Like a lot of us use things like Grammarly, we use machine transcripts. So a AI enables a lot of things. But this is actually one of the big things marketers get wrong is that they think that that AI is going to solve their content generation problem, but it's not because no one wants to see any more mediocre bullshit content out there yes. from marketers than they do. What 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 generative AI can really do though is really help with a lot of the aspects of. So so this there's this notion with generative AI around instant mediocrity that that uh, Hyun Park developed, but it's actually a really important concept because. In, in many cases, mediocre is maybe the wrong word because maybe it's more like average or above average, but in a lot of cases, that's what you need. So, for example, like like talked to retail the other day, they have to load up 20,000 product SKUs on their website a day. A human can't do that. Generative shouldn't, AI can. Do that. So, yeah. so, so we're not we're not actually anti it at all. We just what we're trying to do is to say here's what it's good at and here's what it's not. And when it comes to reader trust, we need to have a very high bar for what we do. We're not telling other brands that they need to do that though, because brand brands are a little bit different. I mean, we're a media outlet, and and trust is everything in media Perfect. today. And if you don't have that, you're screwed. Yeah. So speaking Absolutely. about AI, um, conference season. Good God, what's going on, right? Let's do the rundown on, you know, where we are on, you know, calling BS on generative AI. Uh, okay, cool. Well, well, obviously, every vendor is cutting edge on generative AI, right? I mean, you heard that, right? So, you know. Of course. Every, every, you went to the shows. Every, every vendor anticipated this. They were ready for it. None of them were caught by surprise, right? No. no not at all. Not at the, all. No, they're, they're all on top of it, and everything's going to be wonderful. Um, no, so, so actually, you know, we, we kind of went to, you know, we kind of went through this this spring. Whoops, am I staticky? Someone is. Maybe it's me. Hopefully it's not. Um, anyway, we kind of went through that this spring. Whoops. Let me try something. There's some great talks. There's some great talks. Can you hear me okay? Can you hear me okay? Yes, yes. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, so anyway, um, so so I went... I went into the spring with really an, an open mind around what to expect and I think like um, what I did for y'all is I created a little bit of a, a, a true false on, on generative AI um, you know and uh, and I thought you guys might want to play for a few minutes here before we wrap up um, but 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 just to kind of frame the table um, it's it's a massive massively misunderstood technology um, the consumer search use case is a perfect example of playing to the weaknesses, not its strengths, because AI has a tendency to serve up inaccurate information at times, and I'm not really into making big I companies I like a good hallucination all the time. So keep yeah, going. I'm not really interested in making big tech companies richer at the expense of livelihoods of expert pub publishers like myself. But um, on the other hand, um, what I have acknowledged and what I did acknowledge on our last show is that unlike the Web3, WebMe, Metaverse, Venture Capital Fantasy, generative AI is a cultural phenomenon. And we heard that a lot from customers this spring they said look i mean we've looked at metaverse we've looked at this other stuff but we can't ignore generative ai so the general customer sentiment is that across pretty much every industry is that you have to kind of act on this and look into it and i think that's what that tells you is what a phenomenon this is right that that, that every enterprise leader understands that they have to be kicking tires in this and trying to yeah, we're trying to choice. figure it out yeah, and, and my I have this like really interesting proposition for y'all about the enterprise, which is I think this is the enterprise's chance to redeem itself for being a tech laggard for the last few decades because everything that the enterprise is good at is exactly what generative AI needs. Things like security, data privacy, governance, uh, like reducing false and inaccurate information, all that stuff, and, you know, getting data right, getting your data platform right, which, which is, of course is the prerequisite to all of this. The enterprise is good at this crap. So, so actually, this sets the stage for the enterprise really delivering on the promise of generative AI 
if they can do it, if, if they can make it happen, right? And, and I think that's a really interesting narrative. And I'd love to see it happen personally because the enterprise is, is always getting embarrassed by the innovations in the consumer oh, yeah. tech space, <laughs> as, as you know. And you've documented that about as well as anyone. So anyway, so we do a little bit of true or false. Yeah, let's um, do it. Okay. All right. All right. Generative AI apps for the enterprise are ready for broad usage and adoption. Of course. They've got all the data, man. I, I've seen all the press releases. <laughs> <laughs> False. Right. Um, li likely, likely, I think we should keep an eye on next spring for what we would call generally available generative AI functionality. Though, uh, as as your last guest alluded to, I think retailers are going to do a big generative AI push for the holidays. And you know, digging into that, um, for example, uh, at a Salesforce show where uh, Rob Garf was talking about how he's, he's predicting a 194 billion dollar. Um, you know, AI market for the holidays, including the impact of generative AI on sales. But what he did say, which was interesting, is that some of the stuff like inventory isn't going to get included yet. So it, it's a time thing. It's going to take time for these things to evolve. Okay. All right. So, so good job on that. Um, all right. Let me give you another one. Uh, generative AI won't be adopted in the enterprise because of privacy concerns about chat, GPT, and commingling appropriation of data. <laughs> True false. or false? <laughs> exactly. False. Yes. Uh, generative AI, uh, you know, the, the question is whether it will work for smaller companies and specialized industries due to, you know, the need for large data sets. But for the most part, there's a number of vendors working to solve that problem. So, for ex so yes, absolutely. It's not going to be a barrier for adoption. But, but John, John, do you, do you think we're going to run out of data? You know, in this process, like because it, because we, I, I think about it this way, right? Like you're okay with sixty percent accuracy, seventy percent accuracy for self-service, right? That, that's okay, right? If you're trying, you know, look at the retailer side to make sure you bought the wrong thing, and you're trying to return something, right? Are you okay with sixty to seventy percent accuracy for healthcare? <laughs> I mean, we have enough data points, right? We're going to see a lot of this, so. Yeah, we are, and I think that's why a lot of a lot of the smart design happening on this is human in the loop type processes, right? Yep. Where where there's so much obsession with saying generative AI is going to replace this or replace that, whereas thinking of it as an intelligent virtual assistant and and yep. a separate reference point is actually the more powerful way to look at it this at this time. And and when you step behind the hype, that's what the smart people in this industry are working on. Okay, let's do a couple more. Uh, generative AI ushers in the long-awaited era of one-to-one -one personalization. <laughs> True or false? True. <laughs> Bingo. False. <laughs> I, I do have a couple of trues in here, but we don't have time to do all here? of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I am sensing I am sensing a trend, but I do have a couple of trues, but actually we may not have time. But one-to-one -one personalization is a classic example, a textbook example of what you would call AI overreach. And I used one example of that in the context of um, there was a situation with uh, that I that I wrote about where it's like imagine you know a generative AI email to a to a high value customer saying we're really looking forward to seeing you and your wife at the resort again and the wife's actually in the hospital, right? And 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 you can't. Well, that wasn't the wife the first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and you can't walk that back with a customer, right? And, 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 and the you problem, can't walk that back with a customer, right? And, 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 and the problem, and, the problem is that and, like. And, the problem is well, that, like, we, are we going well, all over the place? Are we going all over the place? Wow, yeah. wow. Yeah. This show's going on. We are echo like a mother. Oh, we're back now. Um, so, so anyway, anyway, you can't walk that kind of stuff back, right? And and even if you're you're supervising that content, you might not spot that type of thing. So um, anyway, I challenged a vendor that was proclaiming a lot of stuff around this revolutionizes one-on-one -on -one personalization. I got them one-on-one -on -one and said, "Come on." And what they really acknowledged is what this is, is an advance in segmentation. It's not one-to-one, -one, but it will allow us to target much more focused groups at, at a much greater scale than we ever have before. And so I think really what, what we need to do collectively is to help buyers understand exactly what this is good for and what it's not, and not be afraid of that conversation. And, and if we can have that, I think we're going to have a lot of impact. And we'll, like I said, I think as the, as the holiday season peaks, we're going to start to see generative AI in action this year. It is. It's going to show up in dynamic pricing. But I think we also have to recognize what our previous um, guest mentioned in that 
you could have a company or a line of and poo-poo a certain capability like e-commerce only to find themselves incredibly late to the game. So maybe investing in generative AI technologies today is not going to get you one-to-one. But if you don't invest in the skills, in the platform, in the capabilities, in a very quick, and and I'm not qualified to say what that means. It could be next year. It could be two years, five years from now. You will have capabilities that we laugh at now, but you don't have the investments necessary to compete. Well, well, let me just clarify really quickly because this is an important point. Um, at, at, at the, the, I talked to a ton of customers on, on this on a t- ton of industries. What they're doing, Vala, is they're not, they're not holding off on stuff like that, but what they are doing is they're, f- they're focusing on more internal use cases where they feel a little safer, yes. or they're focusing on use cases like the product information one I described with SKUs that's a little more of a safer use case. Right. So it's not that they're not doing it, but they're building up to the more right. sophisticated use cases we're describing, and I think that's just the way to understand it is not necessarily that these things are, are completely out of reach, but to understand what the priorities should be like. So, for right. example, in the manufacturing sector, talking to those customers, their big focus, a lot of them don't even know what they're going to do exactly with all of this stuff yet. Obviously, predictive maintenance is a big one. But what the first thing they have to do is get those those machines, which are notorious for being black boxes of their own, talking to everything else. So the first step is your data platform. And I don't care whether you're talking to a retailer, manufacturer, whoever. The, the best thing you can do for generative AI right now is to get your data shit together. Because if you don't have an overarching ability of the customer, you're not going anywhere. No. Yeah, and I, and I think and I think the thing here too, it's all these discussions that tend to be asymmetric in nature, talking about the benefits of this technology for the vendor or company, ignoring the fact that the buyer is going to use Gen AI capabilities to decide who they're going to spend their money on. So if you as a company are not investing in these technologies, you're missing out the fact that 100, 200 million, 300, half a trillion, uh, uh, will, will, half a billion will start using these capabilities to decide which companies they're going to spend their money with. So you can't sit there and wait because this is not an asymmetric well, uh, solution. Space. Well, and there's also, and real quick, there's also shadow GPT, right? Where 90% of, yep. of marketers are already using this technology. Yep. Y- you maybe don't want them using, uh, you know, consumer tools to plug in your corporate proprietary data yes. for use cases. So that's <laughs> well, another good reason to get on top of A lot of, of data will also not be striped as well and won't be available. Yeah. Anyway, I think we, we expired again. Yes, we are out of time. So, but we're here with John Reed, co-founder at Diginomica. We can f- catch his latest ebook on the Diginomica website, and more importantly, you know, doing the AI true or false. So, catch read future. The, <laughs> read the last couple of chapters. He talks about B two B buyers trust their networks, but what about your brand? And he talks about final word on on the bots ahead. So. Hey, congratulations on the long form writing and, and it absolutely Thanks, is fresh thinking. So get on Diginomica, inform slash buyer and get the book. It's amazing. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, all. Cheers. Happy Friday. Uh, is, is, <laughs> do, we, do we have any guests that comes to a segment as prepared as John? <laughs> he comes no. here. He wins the award. He wins the award. So. Unbelievable how much, oh, by the way, all our guests are amazing, but he has props. He has truth, true, true or false questionnaires. He's, he has his A game every time he comes on. My, 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 I think might be my favorite guest of all time. What anyway. do we have for episode 327? <laughs> so we've got next week is all about doctors. We have Dr. Megan Palmer, <laughs> Senior Director of Public Impact at Ginkgo uh, uh, BioWorks, Dr. Diva Chandar, uh, anesthesiologist neurologist and data scientist, and Dr. David Bray, director of Geotech Center and Geotech Commission. So, Ray, we're going to be surrounded by a bunch of PhDs, big brains. <laughs> so talk about having to bring our A-game. <laughs> no, we have to read up. <laughs> <laughs> to Disrupt TV. Ray, in 30 seconds or less, can you recap uh, today's episode? Ah, yeah, we're almost out of time. So I was uh, trying to, uh, I, I think the main thing really was, look, AI is changing, it's evolving. Uh, we've got new tools that are coming together. That n- intersection between the AI, the metaverse, uh, and the way we actually make decisions is going to happen. People don't see it today, but people like uh, you know Doc, Doc Michael and Mori are connecting those dots. Uh, what we're also seeing is that you know this world that we look at in terms of business models are completely changing, uh, but it's the large players that are reinventing themselves to compete with the digital giants, and it's also the digital giants.
giants that are trying to get into the brick and mortars, that story is still not over. It is a story that's been told for the last 23 years, and it is still coming to fruition as two big giants battle it out. Uh, but more importantly, um, that also changes the way our buying habits occur. And if you think about B2B marketing, where it's going, uh, it is changing. And it's B2B2C in many ways. And more importantly, uh, the buyers and the influencers and the way decisions are being made are are today pure in the future, influenced by AI, but more importantly, all this stuff is going to wrap themselves together uh, when we actually see how the buy side, the sell side, and the signals in terms of how people actually react um, change the way B2B buyers think. And, and that's already happening in the space. Build, build your trusted network. That's, build your that's trusted key. network. That's key. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you next Friday. Bye, everyone. All right, bye.